All right. Well, good morning, River City. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Uh, if you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome. Glad that you would join us this morning. If there's anything that we can do to serve you or help you get, especially get connected to the community here at River City, uh, we would love to be able to do that. Come find me or Aaron or somebody else who looks like they know where the bathrooms are around here. Uh, we would love to get to know you and help you get plugged in. So uh, excited to continue uh, walking through our series. We're working our way through the book of First Corinthians. And uh, this morning, uh, we kind of uh, keep, uh, keep going in there. So if you've been gone or you're just visiting or if like me you forgot what you had for breakfast, let alone what some pastor said last week, let me catch you up on uh, where we've been and uh, we'll dive into our time in God's word this morning. So uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a, a church in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth. And it was a city that was kind of located right on this little isthmus that connects the, the kind of the, the peninsula of Greece, the Peloponnesian Peninsula with the main part of Greece. And so it was at this really strategic, important location. And, and because of that, it basically controlled east-west trade between Rome and the eastern part of the Mediterranean. And so it was a very important and wealthy port city. But the other thing we've tried to highlight the past few weeks is that it wasn't just a, a wealthy, important city. It was a new city. You see, um, Rome had conquered the city of Corinth about 200 years before Paul writes this letter. And they basically just left the city just totally desolated. And they left it that way for about 100 years. And so about 100 years before this letter gets written, uh, Rome decides it's about time to resettle Corinth with people who are excited about Rome and get that port city up and running again so they can use it for their own purposes. And so Rome resettles the city of Corinth, mainly with people who are freed slaves and army veterans. And so what you have is a city that is not only incredibly important and wealthy, but a city that's full of people who are trying to make a new life for themselves and a new name for themselves. And what you see happening in Corinth is that the single most important thing in Corinth was, was kind of climbing up the social ladder and making an identity and making a name and getting a status for yourself. And that's the stuff that mattered the most in the city of Corinth. And, and everything in Corinth, it revolved around that. It revolved around climbing the social and economic ladders. And, and what you see is that you read the letter of 1 Corinthians is that uh, the church wasn't any different. The, the things that were controlling the culture at the time were driving the church as well. And, and, and what you see is that what becomes painfully clear as you read the letters that their highest priority, it's their own glory and their own social advancement. Not God's glory, not, not his kingdom, not the advancing of the gospel. And as you can imagine... That was causing all kinds of problems, just endless amounts of problems. And in fact, as you study the letter, what you'll, what you'll see is that almost all of the issues that the Apostle Paul has to address in this church, they stem from the controlling, driving influence in this church uh, being, being matching the, the narrative of their culture and trying to climb the social and economic ladders in their day. And, and so Paul has to address that. And what we've seen in the past few weeks is that the first area that this underlying problem is manifesting itself is, is in divisiveness and tribalism in the church. You see, people are kind of forming factions around the different various church leaders, and they're fighting amongst one, one another. And, and the divisions, they're not based on theological differences. They're, they're not some kind of weird pastoral popularity contest, which is the lamest popularity contest there ever could exist, right? Uh, but instead, it, what's going on is that these Corinthians are seeing their leaders as patrons. And patrons in the Corinthian system was kind of someone who was kind of higher up the ladder than you, whether maybe they were wealthy or influential or seen as respectable. And, and so you'd kind of attach yourself to a patron. And by your association with them, you'd kind of rise the rank. 
strengths and your, your social status and your identity would rise. And, and so the, the Corinthians are just, just seeing their leaders in that way. And so in spite of this incredible identity they have already because of Jesus as God's beloved and chosen and sent and commissioned people, they're, they're still trying to manufacture and secure an identity for themselves. And they're trying to do that by attaching themselves to the various leaders like Paul and Apollos and others. And, and what we see is throughout chapter 1 and 2, Paul shows how, how the wisdom of the gospel, it systematically undermines that kind of thinking. And it undermines this Corinthian-formed view of identity and status and leadership. And, and Paul's not just trying to get this church to stop viewing their identity and status and their leaders with Corinthian glasses on. He's not just trying to stop them from seeing it through Corinthian lenses. He's trying to get this church to start seeing those things through the lens of the gospel in light of the, the person and the work of Jesus and the message of the cross. And see, in contrast to the Corinthian-formed view of leadership, which saw leaders as influential patrons who could help you climb the social ladder and, and manufacture an identity for yourself, and who saw leadership itself as ultimately about gaining personal power and authority and praise... You see, a gospel-formed view of leadership Paul lays out for us in chapters 3 and 4, it, it describes leaders as humble servants who God uses to help remind us about the identity that he gives us. And it, as well, it describes them as accountable stewards who, don't, who, don't have any, uh, who use their leadership and, and authority not for their own gain, but for the good of others and for the glory of God. And, and so as we get to the end of chapter 4 this morning, and the, it's the, kind of the end of this first section of, of the book of 1 Corinthians, and Paul's kind of wrapping up this series um, talking about their identity and their status and leadership and some of that kind of stuff. What we're going to see is that he rounds out this gospel-formed view of leadership with one final and, and really important distinction. You see, in contrast to this Corinthian-formed view of, of authority and leadership, which was just a reflection of the, of the authoritarian leadership of Rome and, and the Caesars, what Paul lines out for us this morning is that a gospel-formed view of leadership, it reflects instead something else. It, it reflects the loving and corrective fatherly leadership of God. You see, a gospel-formed view of leadership, it reflects the loving and corrective fatherly leadership of God. And, and as we study this morning, what I hope is, I hope that you see that truth, but more than that, what I hope is that you see not just a model of leadership, but, but you see the God that it reflects. And as we see him and as we treasure him, what, you, what happened is that you would be, be gladly willing to submit your lives to his fatherly leadership but, but more so that as well, in addition, that you'd be able to reflect his fatherly leadership in your own leadership of others, in your own influence of others. And so with that in mind, let's pray and we'll dive into our time in God's word this morning. God, thank you so much for your word. We are we're grateful for it. God, I'm especially grateful this morning that our time together isn't dependent on me. Um, yeah, God, I just feel like I'm always inadequate without you, but I just sense that, especially this morning. And God, I just like sense my need for you and just the reality that our time together is totally pointless and will be fruitless without you being the one that empowers everything to happen. And so, gosh, I ask that you would empower me to just preach and teach your word with power that I don't have and that you would give it to me. God, I pray that you would enable us to hear and respond to your word with ears that we can't have apart from you. And so, God, we just come dependent on you this morning. We're just needing you to meet us through our study of your word so that you might change us and shape us and form us so that we look more like you. 
And so, God, we just humbly come before you. We ask that you would do that this morning, that you'd meet us in our need for you and transform us and change our hearts and our minds and our lives. Uh, God, not just for our good, but God, we ask that you do it for your glory so that the world sees a people who reflect you uh, and that that would be beautiful to them. So we need you, God. We pray all that in your good name. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, we're in the end of chapter 4 this morning, wrapping up this section here. We're going to start in verse 14. Paul, again, here is writing to this church in Corinth. He says, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I've sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, and he will remind you of the way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you, however, become arrogant and as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out how, how these arrogant people are talking and what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. For what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love with a gentle spirit? Like I mentioned before, Paul in chapter 3 and 4, what, he, what he's doing is he's kind of outlining for us this gospel-formed view of leadership. He's, he's describing uh, what happens when the upside-down message of the, of the cross and the person and the work of Jesus, when the gospel uh, changes your status and your identity, it changes your view of leaders and leadership as well. And we saw how instead of seeing leaders as influential patrons who could just help you climb the social ladder and get the identity and the status you're trying to manufacture for yourself, Leaders are humble servants, tools that God uses to help point you back to him and to the identity he gives. And instead of seeing leadership itself as being about acquiring power and authority so you can advance your own name and your own agenda, we see that leadership in a gospel lens is it's seen through the perspective of an accountable steward whose only authority comes from God. And who uses that authority not for their own good, not for their own agenda, not for their own name and praise but for God's glory and for the good of others. And they use that authority at God's direction, not their own. And finally, this morning, as we kind of Paul wraps up this, what we see is that a, when the gospel forms our view of leadership, we start to see leadership through the lens of a loving father, not an authoritarian ruler. You see, the, the Bible as a whole, it, it uses familial language all throughout. Over and over, God refers to himself as a father, and, and 1 Corinthians is no exception. We see this family language over and over again. Paul greets this church in the name of God, our Father, who repeatedly refers to them as brothers and sisters. But here in verse 14, we see a little bit of a shift in that language. He, he, instead, he calls them here his dear children. And it, that's not a derogatory term. It's not a term that's meant to belittle them or make them think less of themselves. Instead, it's a, it's a phrase, it's a term that is meant to show his affection for them. It's meant to highlight his fatherly concern for them. You see, they have been acting like self-centered, ignorant kids, and they're being really honestly a pain in the neck, right? I don't know if you as parents have kids that drive you crazy, even if you love them, right? Sometimes you want to wring their necks, right? It's just how it works, right? Because sometimes kids are hard, and they don't realize that other people exist, right? And that the world shouldn't revolve necessarily around them. 
And that's what's happening here. And so Paul, is, he's rebuking this church and he's correcting them and he's calling them out for basically acting like selfish, ignorant kids. But what he wants to make clear is that he's not doing that. He's not trying to shame them by calling that out. He's not trying to just embarrass them. Instead, he says, I've written these things to you, not to shame you, but to warn you. That, that word warn or, or admonish, it, it has the connotation of a loving criticism that's intended to correct, not just to provoke or embitter someone. It's, it's the language that's used when you care about somebody and you want their good. It's the way that you would come to somebody in love and humility and gentleness. You'd come to them and you would be honest with them. You might have to say hard things to them, but you do it not out of anger or out of pride or self-righteousness, but it's the language of a, a correction that's used when you care for someone. You see, and Paul wants to make really clear that that's what's going on here. He's not just trying to shame them or embarrass them, because what Paul knows is that when you use shame to motivate behavior change, uh, not only does that never actually work, um, but all it does is it teaches people to either hide better or just try really hard in their own effort. Again, none of those things work, you know? See, shame, it doesn't actually lead to change. It just leads you to covering up your sin better, right? It just leads you to, to, to hide those things better. You're not actually changing on the out. You might be externally kind of changing, but really what's going on is you're just getting better at hiding the things that are really going on in your heart. Or you're just getting better at trying really hard in your own effort to kind of line up, which is just exhausting and soul-crushing in the same way. And so Paul knows that, that shame doesn't work. And so he wants to make clear to this young church, hey, I'm correcting you. I'm calling out your sin. I'm doing that for you, but I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad about yourselves. I'm doing it because I love you and I want your good and I care about you. I care enough about you to say hard things to you. You see, but he does want them to change. And so he does actually say those hard things and he warns them and he's admonishing them about all the ways that their thoughts and their actions, the way that they're living and relating to one another and to their world are totally and completely out of line with the message of the gospel and the example that Jesus has set and the example that Paul set for them. But he's doing that, he says, not to shame them, but to warn them, he says, because I love you like a father. You see, in verse 15, he goes on, he says, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. You see, that word guardians that Paul refers to there, it's a rich Corinthians. They, they would have had kind of people that they would have hired to kind of basically take their kids to and from school and kind of like be like a nanny slash babysitter kind of person who would kind of watch out for them and make sure they weren't really getting into too much trouble and make sure they were doing the things they were supposed to do. But it was a person that was hired. They were just doing a job. And he, Paul says here, he says, I don't relate to you like a hired hand. I'm not just doing a job. He says, I relate to you like a father who loves his kids and wants their good and is after their joy and their flourishing. And I just need to say this to you. There is no way you write a 16-chapter letter dealing with all of the crap that he has to deal with in this church unless you actually love somebody, right? No parent in the history of the universe loves discipline, right? No parent is like, oh, I can't wait till my kid disobeys. I'm so stoked I get to do some discipline. It's gonna be amazing, right? No parents ever had that thought. If you did, you're probably a sociopath, right? Uh, and that doesn't count, right? But 
No parent wants to do discipline. You only discipline and correct the people that, you only do that for people you actually care about. Because it's hard and it's uncomfortable and it's unpleasant and nobody wants to do that. But you do it for people that you love. And so Paul says, because I love you as a father, I'm going to correct you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in your lives. I'm going to say difficult things. And, and I, I just want to take a moment here to acknowledge that, that we live in a world where the term father, it comes with all kinds of, of baggage, right? Oftentimes kids are, are raised without a dad at all. And a lot of times the ones who have dads wish they didn't have the ones that they had because those dads are a jerk or abusive or, or they just walked out on them or left their family or whatever it is, right? And so oftentimes when we hear the term father, it can, it's not always a positive one. See, but it's really important that you see here the, the language that the Apostle Paul is using, this language of father and this language of kids and this family language. You see, it's language that God uses about himself. All throughout Scripture, God refers to himself and as a father. And he's, he's not the kind of father that's disengaged and uninterested. He's not the kind of father that just like is waiting around for something interesting to happen or is angry all the time and kids don't measure up to his standards. Instead, what you see in Scripture is the picture of a father who desperately and deeply loves his kids, who is intimately involved in their lives, who is not far off and distant, but is present and near and engaged and deeply concerned for them deeply cares about them. You see, and like a good father, Paul is reflecting that kind of love, God's fatherly leadership and affection. He's reflecting that character of God to this church. He has a deep affection for them. They're, they're not just burdens that he has to deal with that are getting in the way of his personal agenda. They're, they're not just some obstacle to his hobbies. They're kids that he loves and he longs for their good. And so he's willing to do the hard work of fathering and parenting and, and, and investing spiritually in their lives. Like a good father, he sees their sin and their flaws and he wants them to mature and he wants them to grow. You see, what Paul's doing here is he's, he's reflecting this fatherly leadership of God. And I just, I just need to take a moment just on the side to say this. You know, parents... You have an incredible responsibility and opportunity to reflect God's to your kids. And, and I don't want to minimize the role of mothers in any way, shape, or form. I don't want to minimize that at all. But I want to just take a moment to speak to the, to the fathers and, the, and to those who are dads. Maybe you are a father now. Uh, maybe you hope to be a father someday. Um, I just need you to hear this. It's so important you understand this. The way that your kids view and relate to God will be directly related to the way that they view and relate to you. As an earthly father, the way that your kids view and relate to God will always be connected with the way that they view and relate to you. And as fathers in this room, I need you to take that seriously. You see... We, we live in a world where fathers are kind of the ones on the side that don't have that much responsibility or, or who are just out for themselves. You see, but the reality is, is that God's given us as fathers especially a role of reflecting him to our kids. Many of us in this church, your kids are really little. 
right? And you're not trying to teach them deep theological truths, right? You're just trying to show them what God is like. And as dads, I want to encourage you, especially when your kids are little, the single most important thing that you can do for them in developing their spiritual lives is that you might reflect the character and nature of God to them. That you might show them what he is like so that when they hear that God is a good father, they will see a picture of you and they'll say, I know what that's like. I know what a good dad is like. I know what a father is who cares for me is like. And so instead of running from God's fatherly leadership and authority, they'll run to him and they'll gladly submit to his good authority as a father in their lives because they've seen it in you. Fathers, I want to encourage you to think critically about what your lives are teaching your kids about who God is and what he's like. What is your fatherly leadership in your kids' lives teaching them about the nature and the character of God? What is it showing them about what is God is like? You see, do you care enough to discipline your kids and to correct them, not, to, not just to punish them or, or make them feel sorry, but because you want them to grow and you want them to mature? You see, permissive parenting, that's not love. That's just an approval idol or a comfort idol that's masquerading as fake love, right? That's not actually helping anyone. Paul here is reflecting the character of God and the corrective, loving character of God, right, who loves us enough to step in when we're walking wayward and, and to bring us back into line, not because he hates us or because he doesn't want us to have joy or freedom, but because he actually loves us and wants us good. And that is true. Do you love your kids enough to correct them and to shepherd them lovingly? And when you do, is your discipline, is it characterized by anger or is it characterized by a loving and gentle correction? Are you after your own peace and quiet? Are you after your own good as a father when you correct your kids? Or are you after their good? Are you longing for their blessing and for their maturity? Dads especially, do you use fear and shame to motivate obedience of your kids? Or do you do it out of love? Are you teaching them to obey out of love? I'll often, my son, I love that kid, but man, he's tough sometimes. <laughs> he's committed to doing what he wants to do, right? Real committed. Um, and oftentimes, I will have to take him aside and pull him aside. He's having a really hard time choosing to listen and obey. And so we send him to his room, and oftentimes I'll have to come to his room, and I will get on my knees, and I will look him in the eyes. I'll have some variation of this conversation with him. I'll say, Caleb, how do I feel about you? And he always responds, Dad, you love me. I know that. I say, Caleb, do you think I want your good or do I want to hurt you? What do I want for you? Do I want your good or do I want to hurt you? He always says, Dad, I know you want my good. And I always respond to him and I say, Caleb, because you know that I love you and because you know that I long for your good, you can choose to listen and obey. And I would be lying to you if I said that just magically changes his behavior, right? 
right? Sometimes by God's grace, it does, right? But the point is not that I'm just trying to get some behavior change out of him, but because what I want to do is instill deep into his soul that the reason you obey and the reason you submit to good authority is not out of fear and is not out of shame. It is not just out of a desire to avoid consequences, but because you know that your dad loves you and you know that he is committed to your good. And that he would never do something or ask you to do something that wasn't, that wasn't for your good and wouldn't ultimately bring about your joy and your blessing. And I want to instill deeply into his heart that reality. Because the way that he relates to me will be the way in which he views and relates to God. And if shame and fear are the things that he relates to me with, then that's the way he's going to view God. That God just makes him obey out of fear and because of shame. But instead, what I want to instill in him is that you obey out of love because you know your dad loves you and you know that God is a good father loves you. And again, don't get me wrong, the kid needs consequences, right? It's not like it's like, oh, yeah, well, know that I love you. You should obey. Try again next time, right? Like, you gotta, you know, you have to discipline your kids and sometimes they need consequences. But I want to shape and drill deep down into his heart that the reason you obey is love. That you, that you know you are loved and you respond in love to that. And so fathers, I want to encourage you to think carefully and critically about how you shepherd your family and your kids because that's a reflection of God and it matters. You see, in the Corinthian-formed view of leadership, the motivation for submitting to authority was either fear of punishment or self-serving gain. You, you followed and obeyed leaders because you were afraid of what would happen if you didn't, or because you were just trying to get in somebody's good graces for some kind of personal benefit. But Paul says here his words this morning, what he's about to call them to is in, in, in submitting to his good authority in their lives is not just because he has some kind of authority over them, but because he loves them. It's not just based out of fear or out of personal gain. Instead, it's rooted in a kind of loving, fatherly relationship he has with them. He says, because I love you, because you know that I love you and because you are my dear kids and I see you as a father sees them, he calls them next to imitate him. Verse, 14, or verse 16, he says, Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. So in love, he, he admonishes them, he rebukes them, and he, he calls them to a new life found that's in the light of the wisdom of the gospel. And it's exemplified in his own life as well. And we see the second thing about leadership, not just that, that leaders are intended to have the heart of a father, but that leaders are called to set the example of a father and like a father. You see, in light of his role as a father in their lives and his compassionate heart for them, he calls them to imitate him. I need you to see this. He doesn't just say, because I'm a dad to you, obey. He says, you're my dear kids, and I love you, and I see you as a father. And instead, he says, not just obey, not just submit. He says, imitate me. Therefore, follow me. Be like me. You see, God's designed the Christian life so that much of one's progress in following Jesus and, and Christian maturity happens by imitating other people. Because the reality is, is that like discipleship and maturity, it happens by imitation. 
And, by, and that's the, one of the ways that we grow. You see, the essence of leadership is, has a lot to do with being a person who is worthy of imitating. Not that you are perfect or sinless, that you, you never make mistakes, but, but that you're committed to following Jesus and or, orienting your life around him and submitting to him. And, and that when you do sin and you do fail, you model for people what it looks like to admit your sin and to repent of that and to put your faith in the person and the work of Jesus. And you see Paul doing that throughout his letters. See, the reality is, is that like little kids, we learn first by example. Your kids, you know this is true, right? Your kids see what you do, not what you say. And they reflect, they see through the mirages that we put up with our words sometimes. And they know what's true. They're not like geniuses. They just can see the reality, right? And that's so true of us, right? As we follow Jesus as well, we're like kids. And we need those examples so that we might see what that's like. And we, we're led by example. That's why Paul, he leads this church by example. When he's in Corinth, he, he sets this example for them about what it looks like to live a life that is formed and transformed by the person and the work of Jesus. And throughout the first three chapters, we saw him describing what that looked like. Instead of being committed to walking up the ladders of honor and praise in their world, he's committed over and over again. We see all these examples. He's committed to walking down those ladders for their good and so that they might see Jesus as beautiful and they might see him as the one to be admired and him as the one to be treasured and, and longed for. Paul, later on in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, follow me then as I follow Christ. You see, Paul was a good example because he was following the best example. He himself was a one under authority. You see, and what he wants them to imitate isn't just the way that he dressed, not the way that he talked. It wasn't trying to imitate his preaching style. Instead, he wants to, Im to imitate his life. Verse 17 goes on. He says, For this reason I've sent you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He'll remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. You see, when Paul there, he's talking about his his way of life. He's talking not just in vague generalities, but he's talking about the, this upside-down, gospel-formed view of living. Like I talked about, one that's committed not with securing an identity for yourself by climbing the ladders of the world, but instead one that lives in response to the identity you have in Jesus and who is willing to descend the ladders of honor and praise in our world for the good of others and for God's glory. You see, in Paul, he, sends, he lived out this example for them. But Paul, again, he sends Timothy to be this example for them. He doesn't just write about the example. He sends someone to live amongst them so that they might see and hear what it looks like to, to live a life that's formed by the gospel. And, and this is just a side note here, but that's one, of the reasons why, that's one of the reasons why being in community and why small groups are so important, especially here at River City, you see, teaching the Bible is important, but we don't actually live life with one another. We don't actually see what it looks like to apply the truths of God's word into our lives in a real and meaningful way, right? Our time together here is really important, and it's important that we understand rightly God's word and teach it. I'm, I spend a lot of my week preparing to do that for you guys, but that is never enough, right? We, we've been living in a world full of online church, and right, and where it's just like, you know, Watching a sermon online is not church, right? That's not, that's not discipleship. You see, you need a community of people who are living life together so that you might see examples of people's lives 
and what it looks like to follow Jesus and to be formed by his people and to be formed by his leadership in our lives. You need visible pictures of that. That's why God sent Jesus, so that we might have a visible picture of what it means to follow him and, and to be like him. And Paul sets an example, and Paul sends Timothy as another example. As well, what you see is not just that Paul lives as an example of that, but, but that his example stands in contrast to the Corinthian people who are all talk, but, but no life, right? Paul says that his life matched his teaching. All the stuff that he taught, it aligns with the way that he lived. But he goes on in verse 18, he says, Some of you become arrogant, as if you're not coming, as if I weren't coming to you, but I will come if the Lord is willing. And then I'll find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but I'll find out what power they actually have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but one of power. See what Paul's doing here is he's contrasting the reality between what you do and what you say, between words and actions. You see, these arrogant Christians and Corinthians, they had, they had no problem talking a big talk, right? They thought they were really spiritually mature and that they really had all their stuff together. But Paul says is that but they couldn't back up their talk with a walk of life that reflected the gospel. And Paul says, when I come to you, I'll see what's really going on. You see, because the, the, the power of the gospel is not mere words. The power of the gospel is power to actually change and transform our lives. What Paul knows is that this church, their lives, they're just a reflection of the world that's around them. You see, but the gospel changes us and empowers us and it transforms us to live altogether different lives. And so Paul says, when I come to you, I'll see what's really going on. I'll see if the talk that you have, if you're boasting in your own maturity, I'll see if that's really true because it seems like it's not. It seems like you're just living like the world and that you're not being transformed by the gospel. And so Paul closes his letter closes this, this, not this letter, but he closes this section to them, he, and he comes back to this fatherly heart of correction, and he says, and so I'm coming to you. It's not a matter of if he's going to come, but how he's going to come. And he says, so shall I come with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love with the gentle spirit? See, Paul's a good dad. He's a spiritual father to these wayward young Christian children, and he wants their good, and he is willing to do the hard work of discipline and he doesn't want to have to come the hard way. He doesn't want to have to do it the hard way. But it all depends on how they're going to respond. It depends on how they're going to respond to his corrective leadership. Right? As a parent, right? You, give, you don't just lead with the fist all the ways. Right? That's going to create just fear in your kids. So Paul says, I'm coming to you, and I'll do the hard things if I need to. But I want to come in gentleness and I want to come in humility and graciousness with you. But it depends on you. It depends on how you're going to respond. You see, what Paul's doing here is he's, throughout this passage, he's, he's modeling to this church the fatherly leadership of God. And the question, just as we close this morning, is just simply this. Like, how do you, how do you lead like a loving parent? Like Paul does for this church. How do you do that in, your, in the church as a leader? How do you do that in, in your home, right? Oftentimes, many of us, especially if you've never had the example of a good and loving father, a good and loving parent who, who leads and shepherds you well for your good, who corrects you for good, and who disciplines you for good, and who wants to come alongside you because they love you and not to just be mean. So especially how, when you haven't even had that kind of example, how do you lead like that in the church and in your home? And I hope this isn't a surprise to you, but, 
The answer is you got to keep coming back to Jesus. You keep coming back to him and you look at his example for us and you see his love for you on the cross and the lengths that he was willing to go for your good and the things he was willing to suffer for your good. And when you see that the king who had all of the authority in the world did not just demand obedience but instead in love came not only to set an example that we might follow but to die in our place so that we might have a way to have life. And when you keep coming back to the example that he sets for you and you keep seeing how he has loved and led you like that, what happens is that you start to get a picture and you start to, by God's power, be transformed so that you reflect him in your leadership of others. Whether, again, whether that's in the church or whether that's in your home. You see... You can't lead like that without Jesus' transforming work in your heart. My kids and I, we were reading a story last night about, about just kind of just a library story about virtues. And this little kid was like, tomorrow I'm going to be gracious and I'm going to be humble and I'm going to be kind and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to try really hard. And, and we got to the end of this book and kind of the book ended with just like, yeah, go for it. Try really hard. And I got to the end and I was like, you guys, I, th I think there's something missing from this story. You see, there's no way you try hard enough to do all that stuff. Yeah, you can be kind when people are kind to you if you try hard. What about when people are your enemies? You can be humble and serve people who are being gracious in response to you, but what about when your kids are giant pains in the neck and they're rebelling against you? How do you love them in the midst of that? You don't do it with your own strength, and you certainly don't do it with your own effort. You need Jesus' spirit in you. You need him transforming you. You need him empowering you. Because you cannot be like him without him. And so we must keep coming back to him and keep coming back to his fatherly and loving, corrective leadership in our own lives so that we might lead others like him. You see... That's why we keep coming back to the message of the gospel every time we preach and every week when we take communion. We're reminding ourselves about Jesus. We're reminding ourselves of who he is and all that he has done and how he empowers us to be a new people because of him. See, the bread, it reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us. And the drink, it reminds us of Jesus' blood that was shed for us. And so we remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, and we remember all that it accomplishes for us. And, and so communion, we're reminding ourselves about Jesus and about the way that he led us and the way that he laid down his life for us. And so communion, it's not about making you right with God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or standing with him. It says the chance to remember, to set our hearts, to remind ourselves each week what it is that the example that we are following, but not just the example of the Savior who came to rescue us from living for ourselves so that we might even be able to live in a new way and lead in a new way. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, if you have Put your trust in Jesus. If, if he's the one who gives you the identity you are looking for, if he is the good father in whom you submit to him, then whenever you're ready to take communion, if you miss the elements on the way in, there's a table on the left and on the right in the back, and you can grab one during our time of worship. I encourage you to talk with God. Ask him how he might want to shape and correct your heart as you think about what it looks like to reflect him to others as a, in your leadership of others. 
And so, but there are some of you here that, who are here this morning, you're still figuring out who Jesus is, and you're figuring out if you even want to follow or submit to his good authority in your life. And I want you to know that if that's where you're at this morning, I just need you to hear, you're welcome here. And you're welcome in our community, and your questions are welcome here, and you're like, the confusion is welcome here, and your process is welcome here. But I encourage you, hold off on taking communion. Communion is about remembering what God has already done for us, not about finding it. And so seek him and pursue him and take communion when you're ready in response to knowing and loving him. So let's pray. God, we're so grateful for you this morning and for our time in your word. And God, we just, we, we, we want to come to you again and ask that you would be shaping our hearts and lives. God, help us to see you as a good father who is worthy and it is good to be under your good authority because you love us and long for our good. And help us, God, to be corrected by your word so that we look more like you. God, we know that you correct us not for, uh, not for your just pleasure, but you correct us for our good and so that we might have joy in life as we live as you always intended us to. And so, God, we ask, especially I pray for the fathers in this room and those who might be fathers one day. God, I pray that you would empower us especially to reflect your fatherly leadership in our lives. Whether that's those we lead in our family or those that we lead in our church, God, help us especially to reflect your fatherly leadership in our lives. God, so that our families and our kids and our community here might see your good authority as life-giving and good, as a blessing to be under. God, so empower us to be those kinds of people. God, for our good and for your glory, we ask it all. Amen.